0: I will be reading from the book of acts chapter 21 verses 1 through 14 um, it'll be on the screens you can of course look it up on your phone or you're welcome to grab one of those bibles in the seat back in the pew in front of you and when we had parted from them and set sail we came by a straight course to cause and the next day to rhodes and from there to Patera. having found a ship and crossing to phoenicia we went aboard and set sail When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is the word of God. Good
1: morning, everyone. My name is Scott Irwin, and I am the college minister here at Sunnybrook. I'm excited to be up here and talking through this text. We've been in Acts now, I think, a little over a year. And I'd be willing to bet that most of you have not actually looked at the full title of this book. Anybody looked at the title of this book in a while? If you turn to the beginning of Acts, it'll have a heading. Most of your Bibles, if not all of them, will say the Acts of the, of the Apostles. That's the actual title of the book, the Acts of the Apostles, and we just shorten it to Acts. I mean, it makes sense, you know, they, the Apostles are making their mark in every chapter of this book. So it kind of makes sense. Some have suggested that maybe a better title could be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit is mentioned some 56 times in, in the book of Acts over the 28 chapters. And, and it's clear that over and over, the Holy Spirit seems to be calling the shots. That maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit is, is who we should be maybe focusing on. And then Drew reminded us a couple weeks ago that at the beginning of Acts 1, Acts 1 verse 1, Luke gives us this kind of indication of maybe who the book is about. He says that um, in in his first book, which would be the Gospel of Luke Luke, that he he taught about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, and then kind of alluding to that this book is all that Jesus continued to do and to teach that that ultimately this is about the ministry of jesus so i don 't know where you land on that i don 't know which, which you prefer or which you plan on or or you know often find yourself focusing on in in the in the the book of acts but i i really do believe that the point of this that Luke Luke's intention with this book is not for us to do something with it I, i'm going to say to you something that you probably don't hear maybe very often in church i don't want you to apply this text to your life today in fact i don't i don't think that's maybe the heart of what this this story is about that's often what we come to it though i mean we it's natural we we want to kind of, we want to make use of our time. We want to know that us coming for here for an hour and a half or two hours or however long you're here, it was worth it, that we really got something practical that we could take home and do something with. But I'm not going to give you anything to do. In fact, I'm not going to give you anything practical today. I don't think that's what I've been asked to do. It is my conviction today to not to help you do something, but to help you see someone. And the question is Who? And I don't think the answer is going to surprise you, but humor me and act like you don't know uh, because, because we're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through and, and kind of help you get caught up on where Paul is in this journey. So in, in Acts 19, Paul finds himself in, do we have a map? Finds himself in Ephesus, okay? So he starts this, he's in the third missionary journey. He starts in Antioch, he goes all the way through, he spends about two and a half to three years in Ephesus, Okay, so he's in Ephesus, he starts a riot, that's not uncommon for Paul, and at some point he says, hey, I think I'm going to, I need to go travel through Macedonia and to Greece and then eventually to Jerusalem. So he leaves Ephesus, and he goes up and he visits all these churches and these towns and these villages that he's been to and planted churches in, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. He travels down, he goes through, through Greece, he, he's, he ends up in Corinth for about three months, and then, he, and then he kind of travels his back way, uh, back around. And this time, he sails past Ephesus, and he lands in Miletus. And in Miletus is where he calls the, the, the Ephesian elders to come and meet him. He doesn't go back to, to Ephesus. He, he meets him in Miletus, and they have this really emotional meeting. We, we learned about it last week, where Paul's reminding them of all that he did and, and charging them to continue the ministry of the gospel and warning them about wolves and, and all this. And they gather together around Paul, and they pray for Paul, and they send him off. And it was an emotional um, gathering. And we know this because of the very first verse of, of chapter 21. It says, and when we had parted from them, we set sail. Um... Most of your, if you have an NIV or a CSB, it'll say, "And when we were torn away from them," there's a, there's a lot more that, that's happening here than just oh, and we left. There's there's a somewhat of a ripping thing, a tearing away from. Um, Paul had the deep connections with these people. He'd spent the most time in Ephesus, and and this was a pretty emotional moment. So he leaves Miletus and he sails past coasts, and then he past Rhodes and, and to Patera. And in Patera, it says in verse, whatever it is, verse 2, that they find a ship that's sailing to Phoenicia. So Phoenicia is here. Phoenicia is kind of like like a county, I guess you could say. And so they, they find a, the ship that's going to sail there. They go across the Mediterranean. It says they sail, they, they sail past Cyprus to the left, um, or Cyprus is to the left. They sail south of it, and they land in Tyre. It says they're heading to Syria. So, you know, you see the Syria is like the state, Phoenicia's like the county, Tyre's the city, okay? So they find themselves, verse four, they they land in Tyre. And it says that Paul um, sought out the disciples, or sought out the, is it the disciples? Yeah. The the, the idea of the sought out is this word that's looking for something you haven't seen before. And so there's an indication here that Paul's never met with the the church in Tyre. And so he gets seven days to spend with them. And in the seven days, it says in verse four, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Wait a minute. So through the Spirit, they're telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Guess what Paul does? He goes to Jerusalem. Wait a minute. What? We'll get there. We'll talk about that in a second. In verse five, it says, when our days there ended, we parted and we went on our journey and they, with their wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And they, then we went aboard the ship and they returned home. Paul could have just, or Luke could have just said, and we left Tyre and went to, but he went to some detail to describe like what was happening there. And again, what, what I see happening here is is that Our life in Christ can be emotional. There can be some deep bonds that happen over what Jesus has done uh, in in our life. And I would say, I would even argue that a lot of times, like a connection with other followers of Jesus can be closer than any blood relatives that we can have. And some of you know what it's like to, to leave a group of people that you've um, share that you share Christ with and that you 've shared your life with to leave that group to have to move to another to a new town and establish new friendships in a new community. Some of you know what that tearing apart feels like, and even in these seven days that Paul gets to know these people, they become like family because it says, and with their wives and children, Luke is highlighting like this was. This is a big deal. It, it would have just been customary for the men to escort them, for the men to stand and gather around. That was a lot more customary, to stand and pray. But it was with their wives and children. It was them kneeling on the, on the sand and them praying. And Paul and, and, and others with him, Luke, who is writing this, says, we, we departed. And they leave. Could be pretty emotional. And so they leave there and they they head to Ptolemais, and then from there, they spend a day there, and then they head to Caesarea. And then Caesarea, he he meets up with this, this person named Philip. Philip, we the last time we saw him was in Acts chapter 8, some 20 years prior. Philip actually first came on the scene in Acts 6. He was one of the guys who was set apart by the, the, the apostles, one of the seven who were set apart to do this ministry he and Stephen and and others that were filled with the Spirit. And then the very next chapter, chapter 7 of Acts, Stephen is um, stoned to death. He's martyred for his faith in Jesus and for his proclamation of the gospel. And and all the men who gathered around to pick up stones to throw it and, and kill Stephen laid their coats at the feet of this young Pharisee named Saul. So I don't know if this is the last time that Philip got to see this guy named Saul, who he heard has changed his name to Paul. But there's a, there's a decent chance that they saw each other at the Jerusalem Council. We don't know that, but for whatever reason, in my mind, this is, a, this is an incredible opportunity. Here we have the first church persecutor, the greatest church persecutor, meeting the first church evangelist, Philip in Acts chapter 8, when Saul was ravaging the church, Philip and the rest of the church spread out sharing the gospel. And we know what Philip did. Like he went on, he, he, he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, he found himself, the, the, the last verse he's mentioned, he, he heads to Caesarea. And as far as we know, for the next 20 years, he lives in Caesarea, preaching the gospel and, and ministering to this church. And so how incredible would this, hey, Paul, good to see you. Remember last time you killed my friend? Stephen, how you doing? You know, just these two men, and and I I can't imagine it being there being any animosity because of the what what God had done in and through them. Pretty incredible scene I can imagine. And then Luke gives us this really weird detail about about Philip and his his family. It says he has four unmarried daughters who were prophesying, and then he just goes on like, whoa, whoa what most think that what, what Luke is highlighting here, because it's, again, a detail he didn't have to give, but he chooses to give. What Luke is highlighting is that the fact they're unmarried most likely means that they're poor. And, and the fact that they're prophesying means that they're a valued member of the body there, that they're, they have a prominent position in the ministry there. And Luke is highlighting that, and Luke actually more than any other writer in the New Testament loves to highlight how those who, who, who society seems to call outcasts have prominent place in the church, are valued members of the body of Christ, and life in Christ does that. Life in Christ makes you a valued member in the body of Christ, and Drew reminded us of that a couple weeks ago. And then something even stranger happens while they're in Caesarea. While we were there staying many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentile Gentiles. So now this is two times the Spirit's been mentioned, and this seems to be two times in which there's an indication that they don't want Paul to go. Um, through the Spirit. So, how do we reconcile this? We we need to recognize recognize that the people are discerning the Spirit of God here. We see see in verse 4 that through the Spirit, they're telling Paul not to go, and Paul does anyway. And then here, the Holy Spirit is saying, Paul, this is what's going to happen to you in, in Jerusalem. And Paul goes anyway. So, what's happening here? Well, we know that not only the people discerning the Spirit, but Paul's also discerning the Spirit. In, in Acts nineteen twenty one, I referenced this verse earlier. Uh, here's what it says. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit. This is when he's in, in Ephesus, and he wants to head back and see all these churches and then go back to Jerusalem. He says, uh, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after that, uh, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul's intention was not only to go to Jerusalem, but to go to Rome, the lion's den. And then in Acts 20, 22 and 23, we read this last week, it says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. That word constrained is the same word used here with Agabus, bound. So Agabus is saying, hey, Paul, give me your belt. That's kind of weird. Agabus is kind of like this weird character. I had to look this up. Haggis is um, Scottish meat pudding. Not the same. Two different things, Haggis, Agabus. I don't know if that's confusing to anybody, it was confusing to me. So Agabus, this, this like Old Testament prophet-like character, he comes in a lot like an Old Testament prophet, he, he demonstrates physically what's going to happen to them. And, and he, he says, this is what, you're going to be bound, and, and, and Paul, I mean, I, I'm thinking, goes, yeah, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm bound by the Spirit to go. Um, And then he says in verse 23, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So Paul's not only bound by the Spirit, but he also knows everywhere I go, imprisonment and affliction await me. And I assume that'll be the case here too. But it still begs this question, is the Spirit telling the people one thing and and, and then telling Paul something different? And for most of us, that's a problem. We don't don't like that. We like things to be clear. Um, We want the Spirit to be predictable, and we want to know exactly how this works. In fact, that's the question. How does this work? Like, who gets it wrong? Is Paul getting it wrong? Is Is the people getting it wrong? Who's getting it wrong? And Luke doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Luke doesn't seem to indicate that there's any sort of contradiction here. But it still bothers us. I think it bothers us because we like to know how everything works. Jesus told us that the Spirit is like wind. He just blows where he pleases. You don't know when he's coming and where he's going. But again, this seems to be um, an indication here of, of something that's happening. Life in Christ requires discerning the Spirit it requires discerning the Spirit, and that's something that maybe we don't talk about enough. And discerning the Spirit isn't something that just happens automatically, it's something we grow in. It doesn't, the moment we come up out of the baptistry, we just don't, aren't given this uncanny ability to know exactly what the Spirit's saying to us and to everybody else, but we sure would like that. It would, it would remove all, I don't know, faith. We just know exactly what we're supposed to do so we don't make any mistakes. Sound familiar to anybody? Paul doesn't seem, or Luke doesn't seem to have that much of an issue with it. Discerning the Spirit not only doesn't happen automatically, it happens as we we grow into it, but it happens when we obey the Word. Somehow, as we obey God's Word, He's training us to be able to recognize His voice and not listen to all the others, including our own. But again... We want to know exactly how this works. And I don't know, I can't explain exactly what's happening here. Um, it could be easy to conclude that, ah, this, maybe the Spirit is the focal point of this text. Maybe, maybe that's who we need to be putting our attention, drawing our attention to. The only issue I have with that is that that rarely seems the case, if ever, actually it never is the case, that the Spirit wants the attention. Um, Dale... Brenner calls the Spirit the shy member of the Trinity, saying that he very rarely, if ever, likes to draw attention to himself. J.I. Packard um, describes the ministry of the Spirit as a floodlight ministry. I don't know if you've ever been to a monument at night, like a big monument, like the Washington Monument. I've never been to that. Uh, I, I was in, I had a chance a long time ago when, when uh, Kylie was just born, I uh, was doing ministry in California, and I had an opportunity to go to Europe to travel to visit some missionaries there, and there was a, a missionary in Vienna, Austria, and so I had to spend time there. It was terrible. Um, no, it was beautiful. It was like, if you've been to Vegas, imagine Vegas but cooler. Imagine, Imagine Vegas with, like, depth and history and meaning and all the things of substance that... Is is really important in this world. So I was I was in Vienna and I was walking at night down the streets, and these huge buildings that have been around longer than our country's even been a thought. These huge buildings just illuminated at night and it looked like a postcard everywhere I looked. But I never once thought, you know what, I wonder what those light bulbs are like. I'd love to go check out those light bulbs. I wonder how many they have. I wonder how you know, I wonder what wattage they are and voltage they are. I don't know. I've never thought about it. All I all I saw was the building that was being illuminated, and that seems to be the Holy Spirit's ministry as a floodlight ministry. But who is He highlighting here? Um, the next verse draws some attention. Actually, I didn't read the next verse. Let me read that one, and then the verse after that is the one I'm trying to get to. In verse 12, we we heard that it says, "When we heard this, we and the people urged Paul not to go, urged him not to go." So now. This is not just the people. This is now Luke, his traveling companion, his prison mate is saying, Paul, don't go. I don't know if it's because Agabus now has put some real, Agabus is this guy who shows up in, in, in Acts 11, he predicts a famine. And so like he's got this, this reputation of predicting things that come true. So I don't know if it's that, but all of a sudden it's like Luke's like, oh, that's going to happen to you? No, don't go. And what Paul hears is, yeah, that's nothing new to me. And what they hear is, no, we don't want you to be hurt. Don't go. Regardless, he goes. But before he does, he says this in verse 13. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul had an incredible commitment to, to proclaim the gospel. In, in Romans 1.14, Roman, Romans is an incredible book. We're teaching it at, at the table on Thursdays. And, and a couple weeks ago, we were in Romans 1, uh, and I had to teach this verse 14. And there's this word obligation in there. Paul says, I have this obligation to you. He's never actually met the people in Rome. He's never been to Rome. He's writing to the church in Rome, and he says, I have this obligation to you. And the word is literally debt. I have a debt to you. I'm indebted to you, which is strange because Paul's never met them. How could he have feel indebted? How could he have a debt? And the idea is this, that, that Paul had been given such an incredible gift of life in Christ. Paul says we're dead in our sins without him, and he says, I have this incredible gift of life in Christ, and I feel indebted to everyone who will listen, including you who I haven't met. I am indebted to come to you and proclaim the gospel. Paul had an incredible commitment to proclaim the gospel and he was willing to, to, to suffer and die for him. Um, he, he, he said in Philippians 1 for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Life in Christ often looks like death before it looks like life. Life in Christ often looks like death before it looks like life. Jesus said in 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 Luke 9 23, if anyone wants to follow me, he must pick up his cross daily, deny himself, and follow me. Like Jesus made it pretty clear. Like he's heading to the cross, and anyone that's following him is heading that direction too. That life in Christ often looks like death before it looks like life. In Galatians two twenty, Paul says it this way I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ, who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me Paul's statement in thirteen could easily be we can make this the focal point of the story of the text, and say ah that's this is what Luke is driving at here. look at paul 's commitment, look at his resolve and his and we are tempted easily to to make these Biblical characters, heroes. But Paul wasn't looking at himself. So why should we? Paul tells us who he's looking at. He says, I'd be willing to be imprisoned or even die for who? For even the name of the Lord Jesus. So I want to encourage you. Don't look, don't do something. See someone. Don't try to apply this text to your life. Look at who Paul's seeing here. And actually, there's a lot. Of him to see Jesus is his name, and I want to show you how, even in this story, uh, it's not just Paul being in, looking to Jesus and being inspired, inspired to go and you know live on mission and and willing to do whatever it, like Jesus isn't the inspiration here; I think Jesus is actually what's happening here, so Jesus traveled in the Gospels. From town to town, preaching the gospel. Mark 1, it says that he preached the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He traveled from town to town, city to city, preaching the gospel. Luke does the same thing. Uh, Paul does the same thing. Luke is helping us see the, the, the connection he has with all these churches as he's traveling back um, to Jerusalem. Jesus says in Luke 9, 51, it says he has set his face on Jerusalem. So in other words, at some point in his ministry, about six months before he dies, Jesus says he set his face toward Jerusalem. He's heading to Jerusalem. Paul had the same resolve. Um, Paul also knew he was going to suffer and die. Jesus predicted three times that he would be crucified and that he would rise from the dead, three different times. And one of those times, um, he, he proclaimed this to his disciples, and, and Peter rebuked him, saying, no. That's not going to happen. Jesus knew what it was like for his friends to try to stop him from suffering. Paul knew that same thing. In the garden, Jesus is praying. Luke tells us he's praying and he's sweating drops of blood. And then he says, Lord, take this cup from me, but but not my will. Yours be done. Look at verse 14 of our text. And since he... Paul would would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. We know Paul goes to Jerusalem. We know he's shipped eventually to Rome and, and is killed for his faith in Jesus, but for the name of Jesus. We know that Jesus stood before a Roman ruler and was sentenced to die. What I'm saying is life in Christ must flow from the one who died in order to give us this life. It must flow from him. It must not flow from looking to anything or anyone else. It doesn't happen when we try to apply the Bible to our life. It happens as we see him. Jesus is the final aim of the gospel. Not what he did for us. Not how he saved us. But to see his glory. To see him. He is not a means to the end. He is the end. And actually he prayed for it. He prayed that his disciples, his followers, would see his glory. His last prayer, John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me. One of Jesus' final things to say in the Gospels is, God, I pray that they, Father, I pray that they see my glory. There's something about looking to Jesus Paul says this in Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If you, if then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Anytime the Bible describes Jesus seated, it means that he's sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning with with everything finished. Everything is done. There's nothing left to do. He's ruling and reigning. He says, Look to Jesus who's seated on his throne. And he says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's saying, Listen, don't look on this earth and try to find your life here, try to fix your problems here. Look where your life is, for those of you who are in Christ. Look to Jesus. This is what he's saying. This is how the author of Hebrews says it in, in chapter 12, one through three. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, Paul says this phrase in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He's describing how when the light of the gospel shines on us, and this is the statement he makes, it is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When you come to understand the gospel he, God is, by understanding the gospel, you are getting to see Jesus for all that he is. So what is the glory of Jesus? Hebrews 1 says that he is the heir of all things, that through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the image, this is Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The glory of Jesus is his transcendence mixed with his humility. It is his uncompromising justice next to his compassionate mercy. It is his majesty sweetened by his meekness. It is his perfect holiness integrated with his faithful love. It is his equality with God and his deep reverence for God. It is his unchanging character and his never-ending presence. It is his perfect blend of grace and truth. And though he was worthy, the only one worthy to be called good, he suffered evil. He has dominion over the world, and it's clothed with a spirit of obedience to God. He had a wisdom that baffled the scribes and a gentleness that was loved by children. He had command over the weather. He told demons to take a hike. He healed diseases with, with a touch from his hand or a word from his mouth. He is known as the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. What could we be possibly be going through that he doesn't rule and reign supreme over? What could you be struggling with that he hasn't already conquered? What could you need that he hasn't provided and can't provide? We were dead in our sins without him. We are alive in righteousness with him. We have victory over sin because of him. Look to Jesus, who lived a perfect life because we can't, who died a sacrificial death so that we don't have to, and who resurrected back to life so that one day one day We will. He is our hope. He is our strength. He is our life. And life in him happens as we look to him and follow, as we look to him and trust, as we look to him and do what comes next. And for Paul, that meant going to Jerusalem, being bound and shipped to Rome and eventually killed. And Paul was totally fine with that. Jesus told him when he called him, listen, I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer For my name. That's what Luke that's what Paul signed up for. Most likely that won't be your story, but it's gonna mean something. And it doesn't happen by you trying to apply the Bible to your life or leaving here trying to do something. It it, it starts first by looking to Him, by seeing Him for who He is, and then doing what's what comes natural and normal next. Today, we have an opportunity to worship him. This moment, right now, um, we're going to sing. You're going to have an opportunity. In the songs today, I don't know who picked them. They're perfect. They're going to help us be able to look at Jesus and, and to see him for who he is. I pray that you would take this opportunity um, to worship him. And as we take communion together, to, to sit in awe and wonder at him. He is the point. He is the aim Of the gospel. I hope he is your focus today. And we pray. God, help us to see Jesus. Help us to see him for who he is, for all that he is. And God, I pray um, that, that our worship would please you and bring glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen.